0: This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, here we are to make another episode of the Plucked Chicken Podcast, and today I thought we would check back in, Pastor Bruss, with Andrew McFarley and the Church Without Religion,
1: one of your favorites. He is one of my favorites, and the reason he's one of my favorites is he's actually one of the more intelligent you know, maybe, maybe these other guys have emotional intelligence, uh, but Farley actually uh, makes every attempt to reckon with a text. Uh, I think he's in love with novelty, which is the unfortunate thing. Uh, it gets him into trouble. And uh, you, as you've pointed out many, many times, um, you can't do theology. I mean, we're not beholden to the church fathers by any stretch of the imagination, but. We also shouldn't disregard the gift of uh, really smart people who've come before us and thought about these things, and, and he seems to be a, an expert in that field.
0: I concur. Uh, it's interesting to note how in the last several weeks since we've moved into 2020, a lot of sermons that I've heard have to do with the vision for the church and the vision for your life.
1: Because it's the new decade, right? T-
0: totally. Right, yeah. Talking about novelty—
1: Right. To me, that's a, that's a fascinating thing. It, it's counting time uh, as the world counts time and not as the church counts time without you know, recognition that uh, as we turn the page on a new year, um, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed, as, as the apostle says. Uh, so it's really the wind down, not the wind up. That message, what you just said, wouldn't
0: go well in these churches that are preaching vision.
1: No. So again, the secular import of um, you know it's it's really corporate language, isn't it? You know what's what's next for our corporation? Yeah, Stephen Covey type stuff. Sure. sure. <laughs> seven principles? Is that is that is he the author of the Seven Principles? I don't think it's principles,
0: but yes, it's yeah. the Seven Secrets of Highly Effective People. Is sure, that what something it was? like something that. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then uh, then the Jim Collins came after him with the uh, good to great. Did you ever see anything like this? No. I mean, it's it's all this corporate stuff that is you know. Uh, let me backtrack just a bit. The American Evangelical Church. I mean, it's like um, it, it's just like flailing around in the water, and it, it's just one of those things that grabs hold of anything to keep it from sinking. And so, if it's pop culture, if it's corporate culture, whatever the case may be, it's just going to grab
1: it in hopes that it will keep it afloat for just a little bit longer. I'm sure that's right. I mean, the American Evangelical Church, check me if I'm wrong on this, really appeals to the to the washed middle class. Is that, I mean, is that an accurate assessment? These are these are, um, you know, middle managers and higher. In the corporate world, uh, they all have you know six suits in their in their closet, and um, you know six pairs of shoes from Allen Edmonds to go with each of those uh, suits, and so it's kind of like the language that they think in five days a week gets brought into the church, and it's appealing to them for that reason. This is a world that is not unfamiliar; it's eminently familiar. Anyway, I, to me, this is so interesting. The, the kind of, the church has and is its own culture, right? I mean, it, it, it develops, the church culture develops out of the cultus dei, out of the worship of the one true God, and it emanates from that. What we see here is the culture flowing in, in an entirely different direction in the American evangelical church.
0: Yeah, that's a accurate depiction, sadly, of the overarching emphasis that the American evangelical church deals with. And as you know, when the pastor of that church comes to the text, the text doesn't conform. You conform the text. Right. Because it has yeah. to be seen through that American
1: middle class, upper middle class lens. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not thoughts captive to Christ. It's Christ captive to the culture, in a sense. You know, the, the minute you do that, right, and I mean, you're talking about the flailing, I think that's a, that's a really interesting kind of way of putting it, but corporate America flails from one quarterly report to the next, right? It, it's a constant struggle to show improvement on the bottom line and a profit for the investors. And, you know, the American Evangelical Church is formed in this image is really at the end of the day about the bottom line, whether it's uh, tushes in theater seating or size of building, you just name it. And so just as corporate America reinvents itself constantly, I mean, that, that is the constant drive in corporate America. You can't say you can't like Andrew Carnegie's massive institution. It doesn't exist anymore. You can't say the thing we do is we build rails because if you don't reinvent yourself, rails going away and you're out of business. And so that's kind of really the, the mindset that, that I think we observe from the outside, at least uh, in the American evangelical church. Yeah. And it happens with each
0: passing generation. You know, the the younger generation looks to the older generation and they say, oh, I could do it so much better and so they're going to reinvent the church. This is what you see a lot of times with what used to be, you know, just, just a run-of-the-mill babish church somewhere. You drive up to that church now, and they've changed the signage,
1: and it's Burn Church, Right. right. Right, there's there, there's one here, isn't there, in town on down on 37th. It used to be like uh, Southern Hills Baptist Church, and and now it's got some just name that means absolutely nothing, right? But, but looks like a corporation.
0: Well, I don't know which one you're referring to, but it's everywhere, right? right. Church 360, right? Isn't that the one that uh, Pastor Leistey was talking about in Lawrence? Oh, that's you know? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It means you're. I mean you turn around and you've actually gone nowhere. You
1: turn around and you turn around.
0: <laughs> I mean, okay. So so I was actually uh, looking online there was there's one called uh, Church on Fire. Church. <laughs> and so you know they procure these older buildings and you know to to a certain degree I mean that's good, right? It's it's new money. They probably started in a school. They Uh, have been renting somewhere and they've got to a place where they absorb uh, an older fledgling congregation. Have you ever had rabbit and donkey stew? Have you ever had that? No, I I don't think I would want it. Hey, Well, I mean, what do you think it tastes like? I mean, seriously, rabbit and donkey stew. If you put the whole rabbit and the whole donkey into the pot, what do you think it tastes like?
1: I don't know. I've had chevaline. Uh, I didn't like it at all. It was too sweet. Well the answer is donkey. It tastes like donkey. oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because you got you got one rabbit and one whole donkey. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So uh
0: so the the fledgling congregation is the rabbit. You're yeah, right. Right? And the new hip cool thing with the hip cool pastor, that's the donkey. And so these churches always they meet and they try to say, Oh, we're gonna try to keep some semblance of, you know, the seventy or eighty years that we've been in existence and we're going to invite these Newcomers in, and it's going to be great. And I always think to myself, man, rabbit and donkey stew. Right, the, uh, tastes like donkey. Right. Yeah. Every everything about your old church is gone. Right. Not just the signage. I mean, they're going to rip out the the choir loft to make room for the praise band. They're going to they're going to change the everything. Hymn books,
1: blah blah blah. Get rid yeah. of the
0: hymn books. Put up the screens. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I look forward to listening, tuning in to. Pastor Mc, is it Farley or McFarley? I think it's McFarley. Uh, no, it might be Farley. It is Farley. Yeah, it is Farley because <laughs> McFarley is is Farley McFarley. That's right. your that's your name for him.
0: <laughs> right. What was the mailman's name on uh, Mister Rogers' neighborhood? McFeely.
1: McFeely, <laughs> yeah, Mister McFeely. That's right. That's right.
0: <laughs> so yeah, getting back to Mister McFeely here, he. Uh, he has uh, had quite a bit of time to um, to come up with more twisted scripture. Uh, he starts out with, this is line number six, where he talks about you can fall from grace and lose your salvation. And he bases that on Galatians five four, But then, and then he asks this question, how do we know that we're secure forever in Jesus? Well, lie seven, lie eight, and lie nine, they really fall into that same general category. I listened to all of these sermons, and really he's advocating in six, seven, eight, and nine uh, the idea of total security. And so there really wasn't much new to listen to, even though I did start to think that, uh, you know what concordance preaching is? It's like where you just open up the Bible to what it says in the concordance and then you just you just use all of those verses. Right. You find those words. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I didn't think that he gave a good argument to the people who actually believe you can fall from grace. Well good. I'll look forward to to hearing it, nah. Not, I just, oh. I just thought we would just bypass it. Okay. I really did. Okay. So then, when he got into, well, I mean, while we're on the topic, though, what would you say? I mean, can one fall from grace and lose their salvation, Pastor Bruce?
1: Absolutely. You can take the gift that God gives you in your baptism, and uh, rejoice in it for a while, and then throw it away, and, and think about the parable of the uh, of the sower. Three fourths of the seed, or three fourths of the areas that Jesus talks about in the parable of the sower, have people falling away from the faith. So even Jesus himself uh, recognizes that. And I think there's a confusion, and it's a dogmatic problem, uh, in, in the sense that their system uh, is out of whack. They read the sincerity of coming to faith from its end, namely dying in the faith. But that death in the faith is never the, in a sense, never the question in coming to faith. The coming to faith is in the here and now. Its promises extend to your death and beyond your death. But as soon as you say that we have to read the sincerity of a person in the faith from things that we don't know, namely the future, you are calling into question the actual certitude and certainty of their faith. And that's what, that's what this does. So they, they think they're giving you certainty by saying you can never fall from the faith. But the fact of the matter is, by saying you can never fall from the faith, they're questioning the validity of God's call to you in the here and now, because frankly, you could fall from the faith. And then if I fall from the faith, I probably never had it, and God was probably never sincere in extending me the offer and giving me the gifts of the gospel.
0: This is, this is the doubts that creep in. Right. So why did it take you two minutes to answer the question, and it took him four sermons to answer differently? Because he doesn't even bring up the fact that one can fall from the faith. He just asked the question, and then he says, those people who believe that are crazy because here's what the scriptures
1: say. And then off to the races it is uh, really through the concordance. The scriptures are sufficient. You know, They should be sufficient, and and that's wonderful that he marshaled scriptural evidence. And I haven't marshaled any scriptural evidence at this point in time. Well, the sower. Okay, the parable of the sower would be be one. Good. Sure. Yep. I don't know why he did it. it. Probably because that's how many pages he had in his book about it.
0: Well, true that. So then he moves from a believer having total security to lie number 10, where he says uh, the New Testament began at the birth of Jesus. Now, I wouldn't call it a lie, but I mean, certainly there are people who may believe that. We we certainly don't believe that, that the New Testament began at the birth of Jesus.
1: Well, it all depends on what you mean by the New Testament, right? I mean, I, I don't get what that means. Well, he Does also, he mean the New Covenant?
0: Well, I don't know. He said uh, he's making it out to be that it's at the cross, at the death of Jesus. That's where the New Testament began. But I have a hard time believing that when he looks at his disciples and says, this is the New Testament in my blood. correct, And he's not pointing to anything but the Lord's Supper.
1: So again, here would it would be helpful for him to have some knowledge of the church fathers, but they argued uh, over the question, and, and this might seem like you know medieval scholasticism, it's really not. This is goes back to the Nicene era church fathers, whether Christ's birth in the flesh would have been enough to save humanity. Some said absolutely yes. Uh, the Son of God has touched human flesh. This is the demonstration of God's great love toward you. Um, others said no. The The point is, there are these theoretical possibilities out there. It's not how it went down. The way it went down is that Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin. He suffered and died for the sins of the world. He rose again on the third day and ascended into heaven. And the story goes on, because he's still up in heaven pleading for us, all that sort of stuff. to To try to come up with a moment where... Where this begins is ridiculous. Why doesn't it begin at Genesis 3.15 with the the, promise? The New Testament? Right. (laughs) Yeah, well. I mean, as soon as the promise is given, it's proclaimed. I'm just sort of mystified by why this is even a concern for him. I'm trying to figure it out. I haven't listened to the sermon. No, and, and, you know, I'm just throwing this. I've listened to these things
0: several times. Uh, and it gets rather depressing after a while. But uh, I think it goes back to what you said, man. It's just another chapter in the book.
1: Right. I think he's probably trying to get at the centrality of the crucifixion. And there's no question that that's absolutely central in the kerygma of the early church and, and of Paul, who, as we both know, right? Uh, I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, so the crucifixion looms really large. The irony of this, though, would be this. It would be great to get an, a picture of the inside of his church. Does he have a crucifix? Come on. Well, I mean...
0: It... No, of course not. What do you think is behind him? Take a wild guess. It's very large. It's kind of white. It's a, Oh, a sc- uh, A screen. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a church without a religion, but not a church without a screen. That's what we are we could we could call ourselves church that.
1: without St John's church without a screen
0: <laughs> That would be awesome <laughs> now in lie number eleven, he starts making a turn here. The lie is all of Jesus's teachings apply directly to believers, and what he's doing is he's challenging. It's red letter Christians, you've heard this. Sure. So it's I only. You know, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to follow the words of Paul. Uh, I'm gonna follow the red letters. What Jesus says. And so his lie is all of Jesus's teachings apply directly to believers. His point is actually that's not true. It's only some of Jesus's teaching.
1: What? That's what he says. Okay, so 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 we've got three categories now. We've got people who think that all of Scripture applies to all believers all mm-hmm, the time, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is the Lutherans. Mm-hmm. Then we've got category number two, that actually there are probably four categories. Category number two is probably only the New Testament applies to believers, right? Right, because right. Uh, this is the new eon or whatever. And it's almost um, like Marsian all over. Okay. Then we've got a further reduction of that—that that only uh, the 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 red letters in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament, apply to believers. And now his fourth category is not even all of the red letters right, apply right. to Christians. It's like a butcher—we just kind of keep we keep
0: slicing it away, right? right? Keep slicing it away and throwing it to the
1: to the dog. So so here's the issue. <clears throat> Um, there's a faulty anthropology that underlies this, I'm betting. <clears throat> and I haven't listened to to the sermon. But he's probably saying, look, it's clear that he's talking to the Sadducees and the Pharisees here. You guys aren't Sadducees and Pharisees, and so this doesn't apply to you. That's exactly right. But his, the fault is in the anthropology. He doesn't know what the Christian is. He doesn't know that the Christian is simul justus et peccator, that the Christian constantly needs both God's law and, To do all the things that God's law does, to curb sin, to show us what a God-pleasing life looks like, but also to condemn the sin that the old man continually produces.
0: You know, I I, can't—this
1: always astounds me. You don't
0: have a clue as to what Andrew Farley has laid out. But you're exactly right because I think it's like uh, I don't know, lie twenty three or something. He starts talking about how the lie is is that believers have a sinful nature.
1: Right. Okay. Is is that is that correct? Oh
0: my goodness. So my point is, is you 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 know, speaking of Mister McFeely, you're reading his
1: mail. You you already know. Did you did you order McFarley's book? No, I did not. I've not, I've <laughs> not, I've not ordered it, but it's you know. It, it, this kind of reminds me of a too intelligent sixteen-year-old, you know, who's read the Bible and probably many, many times, mm-hmm. trying to assimilate it all and put it together, and 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 uh, like, oh boy, I remember my Sunday school teacher said that. Ah, oh, here's my gotcha for 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 that point, and and then he just lines up all this stuff, and I mean, this doesn't take into account Romans chapter seven. It doesn't take into account the. Uh, the exhortations of paul in romans 8 right i mean like for example why does he have to go to such lengths to say that nothing can separate us from the love of god which is in christ jesus our lord it's because the christian feels like something can separate us from the love of christ which is in christ jesus our lord now that's not
0: there just to make us feel good that jesus loves us
1: no, no, no. It, it has to, so it bashes the old man and all of his misconceptions about God on the one hand, and it feeds the new man by pointing the new man to the decisive act of God in history, which is the crucifixion of his son, Jesus Christ. Paul would have no need to do that if Christians couldn't, didn't have sinful nature. Right. Oh, no, anyway. So,
0: uh, all right, so it's in this lie, this uh, this portion of this sermon, lie 10 and 11, which, by the way, he started to, in his sermons, he started out, you know, he um, was doing one lie at a time, and then he started doubling up, and then I've noticed... I think he's kind of getting bored with his own stuff, or maybe the people are. No, this is what it is. He's it, going to three. His
1: wife is, oh, honey, honey. There is a lot of shifting around in the.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we've all had that from our wives. Right? <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> so, um, uh, it's in this sermon, though. Uh, that he gives kind of a a one-minute summary, and we've heard this from him before, but I, I think it sets us up nicely for the sermon that we're going to hear today. So take a listen to this. Okay. Do you see that in verse 17, for the first time in this sermon, he
2: brings up the law? Now, the law is a new topic. It is switching gears, and the first thing he says about the law is that it ain't going nowhere for a really long time. You're going to have to stare at it. It's going to be in your face, the law, with 613 commands. You can't annul it. You can't do away with it. You can't tell people it's gone. You're either under it or you die to it, and that's what happens to believers. We die to it. But right now, in this sermon, Jesus' point is, it ain't going nowhere. You're going to have to confront it and do something with it. And so he didn't come to abolish it. If anybody thinks that we're teaching the law is abolished, that's nonsense. The law is helpful to the unbeliever. It is still very much alive and present and it is a tool for the unbeliever to show them their need for Jesus. And then we come to Christ, we die to the law, we live under grace with His Spirit inside of us. A new covenant, a better covenant, better promises, a better way called grace. And we do not return to that tutor that simply showed us we were dirty and rotten and sinful at the core.
0: We don't need to go back to Moses once we have Jesus. So this is this is the thing here with Mr. McFeely. He says something that is right on. He, yes, he did, yep. And then I'll be doggone if he won't twist it himself.
1: And this has been thought about in the Holy Christian Church before. Uh, In fact, it was dealt with in the Lutheran Reformation. There was a guy named Agricola uh, who taught that the only use of the law uh, was for those outside of the Holy Christian Church, and it was summarily dismissed. What works are pleasing to God? They are works according to the law, good works according to the law. You can see this all over the place. Uh, where Paul says that thus and such kind of people aren't going to inherit the kingdom of of heaven, what are those? Those are breaches of God's holy law. Obviously, then, keeping of God's holy law is pleasing to God and doesn't place you outside of the kingdom. This this is uh, sophomoric, frankly.
0: Well, it is, and I thought it was interesting how he just... This was like a little riff in, in the sermon, and he's really going to focus on it for its entirety in the sermon that we're going to listen to today. He, uh, I should say, though, that line number 12 was that the Old Testament is irrelevant, and I just, I just listened to that and thought, you know, of course we agree that anybody That's who believes lie. that the Old Testament is
1: relevant is completely wrong. But it can't be just like the, it, you know, it'll be interesting to find out what he does with that. And I I don't know if you listen to it. Uh, it can't be the trampoline that gets you into the New Testament. No. Yeah. So sometimes people say, oh, it's relevant because it's basically the trampoline that you jump on to get into the New Testament. And that's not the case at all.
0: No, Yeah. no.
1: Uh, and then line number thirteen was really odd.
0: I listened to it twice, and I just I gave up. We can call Jesus our high priest, and still look to the law. I listened to it. Like I said, I was a little confused by it. But I thought that uh, this next lie that he talks about uh, was was really good, and uh, thought you would like to to listen to it as well.
2: All right, we continue our series called Twisted Scripture. And today, we're going to look at two more lies that are very related to each other, and they have to do with the issue of law and grace. And so, the first lie that we're going to look at is a very popular lie. It's a lie that we would see in the Bible Belt of the United States. It's a lie that we would see all over the religious world. It's a lie that we've seen for 2,000 years as people try to mix Moses and Jesus. And here is the lie Lie number 14, your goal should be to keep the Ten Commandments. Now, even as I read that, some folks, maybe even some folks in this room are sort of, their toes are sort of tightening up. Like, what could he mean? What could he mean? Is he saying we should go out and steal and murder? Is that what he's saying? No, I'm saying there's another source for our morality and ethics. And it's not Moses, his name is Jesus, and it's not tablets of stone. It is the presence of his spirit inside of us.
0: All right, he's off to the races here. Uh, Just like you like, Pastor Bruss, he's laying it out, and then he's going to make, uh, make some arguments here. But it's so mystic. See, he's going to say tablets of stone don't guide us in our morality. It's what Jesus has done in us. And again, there's a curl of truth there because clearly we've been baptized. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We, uh, we have the forgiveness of sins. But now something has happened to our will in our salvation in that now we want to do what Moses says to do. And actually, we could say we want to do what God calls us to do or tells us to do, and has written it very completely out for us. We don't, we don't have to look within. We don't have to ask the Lord to lead, guide, and direct. And speaking of clear, you made this clear last night in adult catechesis, which I got to sit in on, where you described to the people who were there, listen, what is God's marching orders? What's God's will for your life? I, I know exactly
1: what God's will for my life is. Because it's spelled out in the Ten Commandments. It's been revealed. Revealed in writing. So he, he almost sounds like a Lutheran here. I know. Right? And um, where he departs is he says that the Holy Spirit is the guide. Well, the Holy Spirit is the motivator, but he's not the guide. The guide function falls to something else. As, as you were saying, it falls to the revealed Word of God. The motivation's entirely different. That's what's different in the Christian. You can find very noble Hindus and Muslims and even atheists. Cicero was a very noble kind of guy. He did all sorts of really fantastic stuff that we would look at and say, wow, those are good deeds. His motivation was different. He wasn't doing it out of faith in Christ. He was doing it for an entirely different reason, namely to justify himself. That's what he's missing. The the frustrating thing with this guy is he, as you pointed it out, he gets some things right, but then he packs too much into it, in a sense. Yeah. He's mixing poo in the cake batter. Right. He thinks that once he's got the thing, he's at the end of the discussion. And so we see in Romans
2: chapter 7, this beautiful truth exposed. Verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Does this sound scary? What's going to be the result? This is not scary. You're going to bear fruit for God. Doesn't fruit bearing sound like the goal of the Christian life? To express Jesus to other people? Well, that is exactly what happens as Paul describes this. But notice what begins the process. You do not bear fruit for God unless you die to the law first. And so, if you want to bear the fruit known as love, then we don't fish through the Old Testament and try our our hardest to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength.
0: No, we say, Jesus lives in me and he is love. So now I look within myself, Jesus is in me and he is love. I think I'll stick with the first three commandments in teaching me how
1: to love God. I think I will too. And he really needs to read on a little bit further in Romans chapter 7, where Paul talks about whether the law is this wicked, horrible thing or not. And he says, no, it's not. Just because it fingers sin doesn't mean it is sin. And then we get introduced to the anthropology of the New Testament, where we have the simile justus et peccator and this constant battle going on. How does the new man know what the right thing is to do? Well, it's by the law.
2: If we're trying to move away from coveting and learn the secret of contentment, we don't fish through the Old Testament, find thou shalt not covet, try our best at it on Monday and Tuesday. No, we look to Jesus Christ inside of us and say, you tell me there's a secret of contentment and that you are that contentment. Show me, Lord, what it
1: means to be fulfilled in you. That drives me insane. Right, he goes, right. Right away from what is written to the interior Jesus, and and then he has a conversation with him.
0: Right, and Jesus is supposed to answer back. Jesus says, I've got a secret of contentment. Okay, Lord, show it to me. So the Lord now tells the secret. He's already revealed what the secret of
1: contentment is. Yeah, and... And we've got chapter and verse on that. Right. And he also... What are you thinking, like Matthew 6? (laughs) Or, or the
0: ninth and 10th Commandments. Right,
1: right, right, right.
0: Or even with Paul who says, whether I've got a little bit or whether I've got a lot. Exactly.
1: I mean, right it's, at the it's end already of revealed. Right, right. It's it's already there. Um, let me make this observation. When Lutherans look at the law and 10 commandments, we regard them as a kind of like chapter headings, if you will. So, look, this is the one about, this is, this is the whole thing about possessions. Now... We've got the chapter heading, and the chapter heading is, here's the theme, Thou shalt not steal. But under this falls all sorts of other scriptural stuff. It's like when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about, sort of he, he elaborates the law. You've heard it said of old, uh, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you if you look at woman with a woman lu- with lust in your eye, you have, you've already committed adultery. He's not saying anything new. That this was the spirit, this was the content of the law all along. And all you need to do is read the prophets. You can have a sort of pro forma filling of thou shalt not steal. You can kind of take people's land legally, and I'm putting that in scare quotes, but then the prophet Amos is going to say, Hold her, Newt, this might be legal and everything, but it is not what God said in the seventh commandment. And so the truth that I'm trying to get at here is that he's taking this whole idea of contentment, right, like godliness with contentment as some big secret, not related to the ninth and tenth commandments, and saying it's something else. No, the answer is, it is the ninth and 10th Commandments expressed in a positive way.
0: But because he's thrown out the ninth and 10th Commandment, he's got to find right. something, and now it's this mystical, hopefully you can grab it, maybe Jesus will share that secret of contentment with you.
1: Yeah, and there are all sorts of tools that the Bible gives us to come to this godliness with contentment. Tithing is very important. You know, it's the Old Testament requirement. But if you if you regard 10% of what comes in as not even belonging to you, just watch and see how your attitude toward the rest of the gifts that the Lord has given you changes. They can come and go, and when you have them, you're, you're delighted. And when they're gone, it's like, well, they're gone, and there's something else. The Lord has taken care of me.
0: Well, what's interesting about that is,
1: guess what one of the other lies happens to be. No tithing. Well, and of course, we should give generously. Now, a tithe is, is a pretty stingy gift, right? It's only one-tenth of your income. The New Testament directive is to be generous. I got to believe that's more than than the Old Testament minimum, and I'm betting any money he's not saying that. Well, I haven't heard the sermon yet, so we'll, we'll
0: give it a listen another time. How's that? Sure. All right, so let's go back to what he's saying here. It's personal, it's connectedness, it's relationship. And so we
2: see here that we die to the law, but notice who we're joined to. I love this. We die to the old spouse, essentially. That's what Romans 7 is about. We die to the old spouse, and then we get married to a new spouse, to Jesus. But not just Jesus running around with sandals on. This is not Jesus in a robe or a tunic with sandals This is the resurrected Christ who lives today, seated at the right hand of God. That's who we're married to. And this is why it's okay to be under grace. I mean, honestly, if if Christianity is nothing more than looking back to a historical teacher and finding the top 10 things that he did, and then we try to do the top 10 things that Jesus would do as we wear our WWJD jewelry. If that's what Christianity is, then it's no better than Buddhism. It's no better than Islam. We're looking back to a historical teacher and trying to imitate the actions of someone from the past. That is not Christianity Christianity is being spiritually fused to the resurrected Christ, the one who rose from the dead, who has power over sin and power over death and being merged and connected and fused with him at the core of your being. Then you say, oh, okay, then that's why grace works. Grace works because Jesus is alive. Grace works because the risen Christ is dwells within you and me that's why grace works and so if we look to tablets of stone we're acting as if Jesus has not risen from the dead we're acting like Israelites we're wandering in a spiritual desert looking at tablets of stone to see what to do and if we just do these 10 things we'll be a good Christian
1: this knob can't make distinctions he can't make uh, he's a terrible dialectician Again, I, I just wish he would have read the, the, the Lutheran confessions. I, I actually, as we were listening to this, thought, man, we got to send him Walther's Law and Gospel. I mean, that would be just a great gift for him. I think he'd he'd benefit from it very greatly. But he doesn't get that Paul is talking about the Coram Deo dimension here when he's talking about our death to sin and our life in Christ. Yeah, before God, the law has absolutely no validity. Why? Because Christ has fulfilled the law and through his fulfillment of the law, we have everlasting life, the promise of everlasting life, the forgiveness of our sins, all of Christ's righteousness. We have his spirit and his word and everything that he's won for us. But we are still, we still live coram hominibus or coram mundo, uh, before men and before the world. There, the law applies. It does not go away. Look, man, the fact that he gets up on Sunday morning to preach is a fulfillment of the third com- He's fulfilling the third commandment. The fact that people are sitting there listening to him on Sunday morning is a fulfillment of the third commandment. They're going back to Moses, though, Pastor Bruss. Well, that's what he's suggesting. Oh. Well, he's going to say if he hadn't already said to go back to Moses is to cheat on Jesus. Now, he would be right in saying that if he were talking about the matter of salvation. But he's not. He's making this sort of absolute kind of thing. This, again, is is a very sophomoric non-distinction that has been dealt with very handily by the Reformers. We are grateful for the fact that he
0: acknowledges that the law has a specific use, that being for the unbeliever. We would totally agree with him on that.
1: The problem is, is he thinks that's the only use for the law, and that's not. It's not. If we can hit the pause button here for a moment and just talk about the fact that this heresy that we're hearing here, this false teaching that we're hearing here, Lutherans are not immune from it. There are Missouri Synod pastors uh, who misunderstand the function of the law in the Christian life. And our hearers, if they're a Missouri Synod, need to be aware of that and need to steer clear of it. All of this stuff sounds really, really good. I mean, and it is really, really good when you restrict what he's saying to the matter of salvation. But the moment you're talking about our horizontal life, our life in this world, you can't be talking about grace. Here it's law.
2: Well, Paul has another definition of a good Christian here, and it seems to be someone who depends and looks at and fixes their eyes on Jesus. That is the good way to move forward. And so he says here, continuing in this same passage, I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me, coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Now, there is probably a whole year worth of preaching in this passage that you see before you. But let's just dig into a couple of thoughts here. I mean, I want you to notice, out of the 613 laws in the Old Testament, which one is Paul focused on? Thou shalt not covet, Right? And where does thou shalt not covet come from? It comes from the Ten Commandments, the ones brought down from Mount Sinai, the ones written on tablets of stone. This is not ceremonial laws we're talking about. This is moral law about how to behave. Thou shalt avoid coveting. And you know what Paul says? He says, if you live under this rule, you are going to covet up a storm. That's what he's saying. If you wake up every day and your thought is, you better not, thou shalt not, I can't. If I do, God will be ticked. If, if I do, God will ditch me. If I do, God will turn away from me. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Have you ever tried to live a day not doing something? We make our New Year's resolutions and they're ruined by January 3rd at a maximum, right? You went a day or two, maybe you went a week, but you cheated, and then you were toast. Well, that's exactly what the law is designed to
0: do. But it's not the only thing the law is designed to do, and I think that's your point. He can't make the distinctions between the uses
1: of the law. Right, he cannot make that distinction, and it is true, we say, that the law always accuses. This is a refrain uh, in the Apology to the Augsburg Confession. Every time the law is used, it's going to identify sin. But that's, as you said, it's not the only thing that it does. And that's the important point. It always does, but it's not the only thing it does. So Paul's
2: issue was coveting. And he was under this law as a devout Pharisee. He knew all about it. He tried his best. And it says sin took opportunity through the Ten Commandments. Just one of them. But sin took opportunity through the Ten Commandments. So do you see that if I teach you to be under the Ten Commandments, then I am giving sin an opportunity in your life. By inviting you to the Ten, I am inviting you to a life of struggle. By inviting you to the Ten Commandments, I am inviting you to move away from victory in Christ and move toward failure in Moses. It produced in him coveting of every kind. And then you notice, apart, I love this phrase, apart from the law. Get me away from Moses, man. Apart from the law, sin is dead. Now, do you notice he's not saying you need a part of the law? He's not saying, well, there's 613. Let me just tear off a piece. And you just need a part of Moses. Just the Ten Commandments. Just a few laws. Not... Not the Sabbath, just the nine commandments, okay? You need a part of, no, that's not what he's saying. He's saying you need to live apart from the law entirely, and that freaks people out today. That scares people to death. How am I gonna stop my stealing if I don't have a tablet of stone to look at? And Paul says in the New Testament, stop stealing. Get a job, work with your hands, offer your body to God. Don't lie to one another because you belong to one another. Look at Paul's reason. Paul's reason is because we belong to one another. That is a loving reason. I belong to you and you belong to me. No, I'm not going to sing it. But (laughs) we belong to each other. And therefore, if I lie to you, I'm not loving you.
1: Well, this is a total mess he just trip into the trap that he set for himself sort of unwittingly don't steal anymore
0: what what is that that's the seventh commandment but you don't look to that that's going back to moses don't look to that look to where paul says work with your
1: hands isn't that law that is law and 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 what he Again, this is this is that he shrunk the- he shrunk the the ten words down to just the ten words and not the full content of each one of them. Number one. Number two, um, you know, he's confusing motivation with guide. Why are we motivated not to lie to each other? Well, because we're all members of the same body, okay? Good. Oh, and. Not lying also fulfills the Eighth Commandment. That's great. I mean, he, he, he's just not getting it. What Paul's talking about, and, and in fact, when we go to this matter of motivation, that's really the, the kicker. When you attempt to fulfill the law in order to please God, then it does increase sin. Uh, and the sin that it increases, fundamentally, is the sin against the First Commandment. Because the, you get on this, on this merry-go-round where you're trying to, really kind of trying to get off of it. You're trying to fulfill the law in order to get off the merry-go-round. And as you do it, you realize that all your activity is just making the merry-go-round spin faster and faster and faster because it's failure after failure after failure, and you begin to hate the God that gave you these commandments. That's how the law increases sin. When you switch the motivation... When the motivation for doing the law is no longer pleasing God, but because you're free before God, it's to appreciate the vocation he's given you. He made me a man. He made me the husband of Chris, the father of Ingrid, the colleague of, of Pastor Kearns, uh, the pastor of, a, of St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Church. This is what God gave me to do. I'm not doing it to get to heaven I'm doing it because he's given me to these people to serve them. Wow. That changes everything.
0: So Mr. McFeely here, he's got this aversion to the law. And when I say the law, the, let's say the Ten Commandments. Right. He's got this aversion to the Ten Commandments. And he is spelling out his rationale for that. What I find to be very sad is that in the American Evangelical Church, they have an aversion to the Ten Commandments as well, but
1: they couldn't tell you why. So, do they have an expressed aversion to the Ten Commandments? I was I was thinking that well, that in that they don't teach it to their children. Oh, they they,
0: do, they don't uh, they don't they don't have them memorized. Uh, they despise the Ten Commandments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah, but they couldn't tell you why. Mm-hmm. The way the Lutheran understands the Ten Commandments, having accused the person of their sinfulness, having heard the gospel, and now, as we say, seeing their Savior, or being shown their Savior, now the desire, the will has changed. Now one wants to do the law of God. This is where the Lutheran would say, what is God's will for my life? As you just said here with these different vocations that God has given you, what is God's will for my life? Well, well, here they are. It's, It's really simple, and this is actually why Luther even encourages the Christian to review the Ten Commandments, say the Ten Commandments go to work singing the hymn about the Ten Commandments. So this is why we do this, whereas going back to my earlier illustration about the American evangelical church just flailing around, uh, back in the 80s it was grabbing hold of what's God's will for your life. And all these books about finding what God's will is for your life, and my goodness, how many books and small groups we went to and sermons we heard and a lot of doubt and confusion and am am i doing it right whereas it's like the ten commandments they're right there here's god's will for your life boom yeah we weren't directed to that
1: i think your explanation now was just spot on and good and that that was the money it responds to virtually everything that he's saying here you left me speechless oh, oh that. <laughs>
0: for uh two professional communicators that's that's uh that's hard to do (laughs) (laughs) the thing that blows me away here is and you you called it for what it is you called it heresy this this is very i I, i'm verging between deception and demonic like this is bad this is really bad but because he comes across as not being the shysters that we have listened to in the past, he comes across reputable, uh, intelligent, well-read, uh, thought through. I mean, hey, he's got a he's got a daily call-in show where people ask questions. So I got the adjective for
1: you ready. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Deceptimonic. Oh. <laughs> How does that work? I like it. Yeah, yeah. I So like we can we can we can actually use that one okay. I think, in the future. So deceptimonic. deceptimonic, deceptimonic. But it is deceptimonic, and and what he's done, uh, did you notice there was a quip in there, where he kind of made anybody who would contend the opposite into a laughing stock. Did you hear that? Remind me. I know you feel all uncomfortable about this because and 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 everybody's going to say, what? No ten commandments. Oh, right,
0: right, 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 right.
1: Yeah, Deceptimonic. Well, let's see what else he has to say. Well, c- can I just ask a question? Is it good for society or bad for society um, if the Ten Commandments aren't made real in the laws of the land? That's bad for society. That's really bad for society. Is it good for you in your career or bad for you in your career if you don't follow the Ten Commandments? <laughs> um, th- that's bad. Is it good for you in your marriage and in your family life? It's bad. Yeah, okay. I mean, aren't, aren't, don't we see this? Think about, I, I love this, right? Uh, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep these commandments luther explains it so well god threatens to punish everyone who breaks these commandments therefore we should fear his wrath and not do anything against them but he promises grace and every blessing to all who keep these commandments therefore therefore we should also love and trust in him and gladly do what he commands again he's confusing it's so frustrating What he's doing here is he's taking the anthropology of the fallen man and his reading of the Ten Commandments and saying that's bad. Oh, and it is. That's really bad. we agree with that. But what he's not able to see is that the anthropology of the Christian who begins in this life in a very fallen, halting way to fulfill the Ten Commandments he's taking that and saying oh, see it's Ten Commandments so it's bad and that's what's deceptimonic. it's deceptimonic. He doesn't see the spirit of the law. the right. spirit of the law was never this kind of crabbed keeping of it notches in the belt. it was always this is how you love your neighbor that's always what it was and Jesus demonstrates that for example, in the Sermon on the Mount uh, Paul demonstrates that when he says, stop lying to each other. You're members of the same body. Stop stealing and start working and supporting and building up the body of Christ. That's the love that is actually endemic in and lives in the Ten Commandments as God revealed them in the first place.
0: You know, when you were talking about is it wrong for society to to see the Ten Commandments and uh, you know, to 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 know of them or what have you, I was reminded how you hear about Washington, D.C., and the cult uh, symbolism that is there, and even the uh, layout of the city itself. People uh, talk all kinds of uh, just wild things about, um, you know, the way the streets and the buildings and all of this. But there's one building, and I want to say it's the Supreme Court, but I could be wrong. Uh, there are this, um, what do you call it? Uh, the, uh, the freeze? The freeze, Yes. So you've got all these friezes of different lawgivers. So Hammurabi's up there and other people from time immemorial where you've got these lawgivers. It's just their uh, profile. And the one that's in the center looking forward dead on is Moses. And all the others are uh, facing facing him. Mm -hmm. So even there and I'm not going to doubt that uh, Washington, D.C., has some occult undertones, maybe overtones, but at least there the architect said the law of God, this is, the, this is, the, uh, this is how man should live.
1: Paul talks about that in Romans uh, 1 and 2, doesn't he, about uh, how um, the law is written on the hearts of men, and so anybody in the whole wide world Here's the commandment, thou shalt not commit murder, that resonates with them. I can't remember the book by C.S. Lewis. It's, it's something about the Tao. I, I, I talked about it last night. I can't remember what it is. The Tao? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he talks about the representation of the Mosaic Law in the laws of all these other cultures. Oh. Even, oh. he even takes the case of cannibalism, and he says, how is how is the law against murder actualized in this cannibalistic culture and uh, walks that through. It's a very interesting book. And so there's a relational reason
2: very different from the haunting threat of sin deserving death and hands being cut off and people being killed because the law required it. It's not obedience out of fear. There's a new way to obey. There's a new reason to obey. There's a new source of obedience and it requires a total divorce
1: from Moses. Obey what? I mean, he, he, he is so muddled here. It, it's beyond understanding. He, he is saying we don't obey out of cowering fear. We have a new source of obedience. What's he talking about? He's talking about obeying the Decalogue. Okay, but if you don't obey
0: whatever he's suggesting you obey, is there anything to fear?
1: <laughs> Ooh. I mean, is, there, I...
0: is there any wrath of God? Okay, okay, oh. Mr. McFeely, uh, we, we don't obey this, but we obey this over here. So what happens when we don't obey this over here, which I guarantee you we're not?
1: Right, right. Again, it, it, he's a bad logician. He goes from... Not obeying out of fear to obeying for another reason. But in the obeying for another reason, he gives a different target for what you're obeying. Admittedly, by saying, um, you know, this has nothing to do with Moses. You got to get divorced from Moses. Goodness.
0: And to your point, anything that you obey is a law. And
1: that was your point, And that's a very good point. Oh, OK. Yeah. OK, yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. No, but that's a very good point. And if it's not the Mosaic law, what is it? Is there a, uh, is... Well, he says Jesus is on the inside. And now Jesus has become the lawgiver, has he not? So we've divorced Moses, fallen in love with Jesus, but we call out Moses' name. Remember, if
2: I go back and I look to Moses, I am cheating on Jesus Christ. And so we see further evidence... People talk around this. They say, oh, yeah, we're dead to the ceremonial law. We're dead to the sacrificial system. Jesus is our sacrifice. But anytime somebody's talking about your relationship to the law and they say, but, that's when you need to head for the door. You can say bye-bye, but then head for the door. There is no but when it comes to our connection to the law, we are dead to the law, not under the law. Christ is the end of the law for all those who believe. And so we see here, as Paul writes these Corinthians, I mean, he shouldn't even have to say this, because they're Greeks, they're not Jews, they were never given the law. But he says, if the ministry of death... In letters engraved on stones, talking about the Ten Commandments, Moses coming down from the mountain, came with glory. His face was glowing so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? This is a competition of two ministries right here in this verse. This is a competition before your very eyes. There is the ministry of Moses and the ministry of Jesus. The law came in through Moses. Grace and truth came in through Jesus Christ. And so we have a competition on our hands. And what he's saying is, in this corner, this ministry is fading and it will soon disappear. And in this corner, there is something of eternal glory and eternal value. And that is what we have right now a ministry that is superior to the Ten Commandments. Again, notice engraved on stones. Are we going to shove this under the carpet, talk around it? No, no. This is our beloved Ten Commandments that we put up on the side of buildings and that we seem to want to worship. Let me tell you, the law has a beautiful purpose for the unbeliever to convict them and say, look, you're coveting. Look, you're stealing. Look, you're committing adultery. Look, you're not loving God. And the unbeliever says, whoa, I have fallen short of the glory of God. I need Jesus. And then they meet Jesus, and Jesus never says, now go back to Moses. You graduate from Moses when you start in Jesus. Do
0: we get a degree or anything? Do we I get a <laughs> diploma? I mean, I didn't realize. I mean, I got a baptismal certificate somewhere, but I didn't realize I was supposed to, you know, get, uh, you know, move on
1: up like uh, George and Weezy. You know, right? Again, so much that's worth applauding, mm-hmm. actually, mm-hmm. but it has to be placed in the right categories. And this is what he can't do. He's, he's this sort of absolutist thinker that doesn't take into account all the rest of the scriptures. And we've seen him, you know, if, if he's wrapping up here, we could even say, uh, you know, we've seen him fall into his own pit uh, where he, he's saying, don't follow the law. But, but actually what the Christian life looks like is following the law of Moses. He just doesn't want to call it that. And a total, shrinking of the functions of the law to simply the condemnatory function, the showing you your sin so that the unbeliever looks at the Ten Commandments on the courthouse and says, oh my gosh, you know, I just uh, stole Snickers bar. What a sinner I am. That's a shrinking of the functions of, of God's law. This guy would benefit in virtually everything we've encountered here from a good one year adult catechesis class where the categories got straightened out, where he got the pattern of sound words. But as you've pointed out before, uh, in evangelicaldom, there is no pattern of sound words. And so when you try to systematize, you end up uh, putting the law where the gospel belongs and the gospel where the law belongs. And that's exactly what he's ended up doing here.
0: And then going back to a comment that you made. Off air about the woman caught in adultery when Jesus looks to her and says go and sin no more she didn't look to Jesus and say what
1: do you mean by that? I thought the Ten Commandments didn't apply to me anymore. Right. right. And how would Jesus have been defining sin? Right. Based on the Ten Commandments. Specifically about the one on which she had gotten caught the or Sixth e- Commandment.
0: Or even the one at the well. Right. The man that you're living with now is not your husband either.
1: But, of course, I, I bet Farley's argument would be, well, he's, he's saying this to an unbeliever, right? I guess. So he was using the law there
0: in the sense that Farley, yeah, legi- Farley says it's Legitimately legitimate. according
1: mm-hmm. to him, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: The law was our tutor to lead us to
2: Christ. But now that we're in Christ, we're not under a tutor. He continues in 2 Corinthians 3, if the ministry of condemnation has glory, notice what he calls it. Moses is coming down from the mountain. His face is glowing, but it's also fading, and he's a bit embarrassed. He's a bit embarrassed that his face is fading, that the glow, it's not working so well. And why is God allowing this glow to fade? He wants Israel to know, ah, oh, this is good for now. But something better is coming. And so he says, There's a ministry of condemnation and it had glory. Much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, past tense, in this case, the Ten Commandments has no glory. Whoa. Can you say that in church? The Ten Commandments has no glory now. Because of the glory that surpasses it. So why would I go to something with an inferior glory when I've got someone with a superior glory living in me? Why would I compromise? Why would I go to something lesser when I've got the one who is greater? Why would I go to something that is founded on inferior promises when I have someone who has given me superior promises? And so the new covenant is greater than the old, and Jesus is greater than any priest of the old. And we're told again and again to look to the new, out with the old, and in with the
1: new. That is the theme here. This guy is a complete liar, just a total. Let me just read the scripture. So, He's just, just so the... so. Uh, let's go to. I mean, go to Ephesians chapter five. Paul is talking to redeemed believers he's established that in chapter four and he comes to five and he says become imitators of God as beloved children and walk about in love okay now in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as an offering and a, and a sacrifice to God for a, a pleasant smell okay so now that's what that's what he says so what form does this love take well amazingly it takes in chapter five following the sixth commandment
0: what what, no no no. mr mcfeely says it's a relationship with jesus and so the uh, jesus is love so you're saying that paul like actually
1: spells this out paul spells this out he 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 brings up the institution of marriage from from Genesis uh, chapters 1 and 2 and gives directives to husbands and wives based upon that, fully in accord with the Sixth Commandment. Then we get to, I mean, this is amazing, we get to chapter 6, and there Paul says, uh, as for the children, be obedient to your parents in the Lord, for this is righteous. And then he goes on to cite, honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise in order that it might be well for you and that you might live a long time in the land. So you're saying then that
0: St. Paul directs these believers in Ephesus back
1: to the Ten Commandments as a as a guide for their life? He absolutely does. We see this in First Peter 4 and following. Uh, we see it in, in the letter to the Colossians at the end of the letter to the Colossians. This is a common trope in the apostolic teaching. And this, this is horrifying. What we're listening to is, is absolutely horrifying.
0: Mr. McFeely's lot? Li- how?
1: Can you believe that Mr. McFeely
0: would lie to us?
1: <laughs> you know what? It's very disappointing.
0: Yeah, because he has come up with something new, he's now spewing it onto this audience not only his own congregation, but, you know, to whoever else is listening to him, because, you know, he's not, uh, you know, he's not a nobody. He is known in the American evangelical landscape. You know, he's got a book to go with it, and obviously, I mean, who, who read through this book, right? Who, who are the people kind of uh, monitoring what is put out
1: and published? I wonder who the publishing house was. That would be interesting to know. If it's self-published or something else or some kind of fringy... You want to make a bet? Self-published? No. Oh. Who? Oh, I don't know. I'm oh, just saying okay. it's not
0: self-published.
1: Um, okay, here we go. So what are you... Ready for the big reveal? Yes. Salem Books. Never heard of them. Nor I. So this has no stamp of, certainly not of denominational approval. I mean, I can't imagine what denomination in the world uh, denominational publishing house or a responsible academic publishing house uh, or religious publishing house would, would, would put this out. So you'll notice that he called the Ten Commandments two things. In
2: 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he called them a ministry of condemnation and a ministry of death. Now, again, we are affirming that the law has a purpose. I mean, Paul says the law is good if you use it properly. Do not hear us bashing the law or trashing the law. The law is good if you use it properly. Knowing this, the law is not made for the righteous. It's not for you. It's made for the unrighteous, the ungodly, the unholy, to show them their need for Christ. So stop using it as a tool for growth. That is a joke.
0: If that was true, what he just said, and you know, obviously we've already said that he's right to an extent, that it is used for this purpose of bringing about repentance. But he's arguing, that's it, stop, end of statement, you know, you know, you shall not pass, you know, from there on. If that's the case, then why isn't he using the law appropriately in this sermon to convict the people in his own congregation
1: with the law? Uh, That's great. I've been thinking of the answer to that question since (laughs) way before you asked it. (laughs) It's because his anthropology, his view of what the Christian is, is uh, truncated. He views the Christian solely as the new man in Christ and does not recognize the fact that we are still in the flesh.
0: Right. It, it was the amagio Dei, like completely restored when I invited Jesus into my heart or something.
1: Apparently, I, I think that's how he that's what his argument is. And actually, there's another whole nother thing here about what the righteousness of Christ is. Is it an imputed or a real righteousness? I think he, to, to go with his line of argumentation, you gotta say that it's that's an ontological, a real righteousness, a lived righteousness, so that when God examines your life as a Christian, if you were to do it according to the Ten Commandments, you would find nothing but perfection. Which isn't to say that imputation is a fiction, it's not at all, but that's a whole different issue.
2: Unbelievable. If you want a surefire way to fail, put yourself under a bunch of laws, call them Christian principles, check in with God about being accountable for your church attendance and Bible reading and witnessing and this. We have a modern-day law we've invented. You might find three or four passages in the entirety of the epistles about sharing your faith with a stranger. You're lucky to find three or four, and we have made it the be-all and end-all of Christian experience. And yet it comes up maybe three times.
1: He is spot on here. I mean, he's, he's exactly right. What he's going after here, well, it must be something that's really alive and well in American evangelicalism. Uh, now, number one, I don't think that anybody, as you've pointed out many times, is appealing to the Ten Commandments and saying, this is how you live a God-pleasing life. No one of real stature is doing that. Uh, who that might be, I have no idea. But if the thing that he's going after is the made-up laws of evangelicalism, count us in. We're all on board. Yeah, and see,
0: I've listened to enough of his sermons where there's a part of me, even though, you know, at the end of the day, where, like, he is deceptimonic, he has put his finger on problems in the American evangelical world. Remember he talked even earlier about going around wearing your WWJD bracelet. I mean, he has grown up just as steeped in American evangelical Bible belt as I have and seen that it's wanting and lacking and something's missing. But what he's advocating here, this is worse than American evangelicalism.
1: I, I, won't, uh, I won't dispute that, that it's worse or not worse. Uh, it's bad, for sure. It's a, an outright dismissal of, of a huge voice of God in the Scriptures.
0: But as was shared last night at the adult catechesis class, you know, it, doesn't take, it doesn't take the devil much to, to, to get you... I think it was actually Randy Fay, uh, who behind me said, a uh, misdirection. Uh, in the the passage of Matthew that says, uh, Jesus came to take away your sins, and you pointed out, like, man, we've got all kinds of other fears. Jesus is pointing out, this one, this one is the worst one. I didn't come to, to give you a happy life or to be your guide in life or uh, a guide in the sense of having a successful, happy life. Um, all Satan's got to do is just slightly misdirect you.
1: And you can get way off. Yeah. Yeah. I'm serious, Pastor Kearns. I really um, would love to spend out of my own resources enough to buy him, this guy, uh, maybe like a Book of Concord and uh, Walther's Law and Gospel. I think that would help him immensely. And just send him. Send it to him. uh, And say from your friends at St. John's uh, in Topeka, Kansas, we've been listening to you. Thought you might enjoy these things. Let's do it. You want to do it? Sure. <laughs> okay. There's some Lutheranism in him, and
0: it would probably be like being told he's got cancer in him uh, based upon the way he teaches, but but it's in there. I mean, he knows more about Lutheran distinctives, but he doesn't even realize that they're Lutheran distinctives. But yep. because they're not complete,
1: exactly. they're all wrong. <laughs> right. He, he A mess gets made out of them. Yep. Do you see? The fruit of the Spirit is not witnessing. The fruit of the
2: Spirit is not church attendance. The fruit of the Spirit is not Bible reading. They couldn't even read, 80% of them, illiterate. The fruit of the Spirit is compatible with every moment. I was sharing this one time at a table of eight, and a pastor sitting across from me, his reaction was to laugh. He laughed that the fruit of the Spirit was not witnessing. Because to him, everything he had ever known and everything he had ever urged and everything he had ever taught and everything he had ever pushed was two or three things. Bible study and church attendance and witnessing. And you say, well, then how in the world did the early church have relationship with Jesus? (laughs) And so what we see is man talking about Jesus. I love it. but It's not a thou shalt. Reading the Bible is amazing. It's the best place to find truth. It's the word of God. We look at it every week. But God's not. He doesn't have out his stopwatch. He doesn't call it a quiet time. That's our word. We've invented ways to measure ourselves so that, oh, it's not Moses, but it's modern day American Jesus, we think.
1: That is so good. That is such an accurate critique, straight from the horse's mouth, really, of uh, contemporary American evangelical life. So if his church is church without religion,
0: if he is defining what he just uh, bullet pointed out as religion, I'm with him. Totally with him. Totally with him. Right? He is a church without religion, uh, i.e. American evangelicalism religion, these man-made uh, measuring sticks or or, or or whatever he called it. Yeah. But that is not, that is not the Ten Commandments. Right. This is the difficulty in listening to him.
1: Right. We've experienced, this is not the first time in this podcast that we've experienced it. We want to say, yes, No. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And that's what's such a a frustrating thing. And ultimately, ultimately, even though we applaud him, at the end of the day, before God, he is an unfaithful, unfit, unqualified
1: pastor. Exactly. He has, uh, right, he has taken the thing that the Lord said he did not come to abolish but to fulfill, and he's thrown it out the window. And
0: as we've talked before regarding other things, Because he is so messed up here, this is not the only place
1: he's messed up. Absolutely. Uh, But again, it's probably the quest for novelty or... um, Or his disdain. I mean, I get it. Mm -hmm. His disdain for uh, what he grew up in. Just wants a clean break. I got to get away from this. I'm going to look at this with fresh eyes and... And so, yes, the effort is applauded. And and actually, I think a guy like this needs a leg up. I, I really am. Um, <laughs> I can tell. You. No, I am. I'm going to purchase are. Walter's Law and Gospel, and I'm going to purchase a copy of the Book of Concord, and I'm going to send it to him with a note that says, oh, well, we've already said what it says. And you think he's going to read it? He seems like a pretty smart dude.
0: And, and, and like he can read a lot. Well, and I would say he's probably not reading the schlop that is that is being uh, the, what is it called? The uh, American Evangelical Industrial Complex is, uh, <laughs> right. is force-feeding yeah. exactly. everybody. You know, he's sure. probably not reading Beth Moore. Praise he's probably not reading Francis Chan. He's probably not reading
1: uh, your typical drivel right maybe but, the better stuff like tim keller or Chavigian. i mean i'm hearing some stuff i'm hearing a little Chavigian in here you this, think this antinomianism oh yeah. oh yeah oh yeah bible belt
2: measuring stick to see how we're doing how many times have i sat across from someone and they say i don't know my walk with god is just not very good i say why not well i haven't done my quiet time I mean I missed church 2 weeks in a row. You know, we have this mentality and the enemy loves it. You're the church, you can't miss church. If you're the church,
0: But hope to see you next week. See right there. That that is that is what I've been waiting for you to hear in that you know, all along you're the church, you can't miss church. But then, what does he drop on top of them, right on the heels of it?
1: Right. See you next week. Law. Right. right. So, so it, it it is a completely nonsensical argument, is it not? It is, and it doesn't make any sense. It Makes no sense, and it, and it also his ecclesiology is screwed up. In this regard, you know, wherever two or three are gathered in, uh, there am I in the midst of them. Jesus says. Um, and you can't be church all by yourself. The church is always the body of Christ, made up of many members, and it's actuated as the, as the body gathers around word and sacrament. Uh, so you can miss church. And miss out on the gifts that the Lord wants to give you as
0: a result. Right.
1: Right. So again, uh, you know— this Which is ties
0: a, into what we started out talking about,
1: one continuously
0: does that, missing out on the gifts. The faith dies, and they lose right. their faith. Right. There is no
1: total security. They fall away from Christ, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, all right, Pastor Bruss, I think at this point he starts going into yet another lie, trying to squeeze all these things into a short a period of time as possible. I think he's ready to, to be done with them.
1: Well, he he certainly gave us enough to chew on here, didn't he? And that that was good. And I uh I do like interacting with this an awful lot because he does make an argument, and even when he's wrong, uh, there are glimmers of hope for him. Um, and I you know when I leave here, I'm going to go to uh, Amazon.com. <laughs> uh, I'm going to find his address, and I'm going to send him a gift.
0: Well, why didn't we do that for Randy Hand?
1: Because I don't. <laughs> <laughs> because this Farley, I, I believe, will at least read this, at least look at it, and I and I believe that there are at least you know he's got some instincts here. He's he's sniffing that something's wrong in evangelicalism, which we
0: totally agree with him on, right? But the direction that he's gone to look for the answers it's it's the wrong path.
1: It is the wrong path. Yep.
0: Well, we will keep you abreast of you know, what goes on with uh, sending out the gift to Farley McFarley, and uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see if he responds. We'll let you know if he does.
1: And I think what I'm going to do is put an application for Concordia Theological Seminary Fort Wayne in the. If I could.
0: That's kind of a. Would
1: that? Well, maybe that would be a little jab. Little. Okay, I'll, 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 I'll keep the. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'll keep the application here. We'll send
0: that to Randy Hand. There we go. <laughs> there we go. You've been
2: listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Masters John Bruss and Devin Kern. To discover more, go to com or St. John org.